Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Jennings. He's the president and chief strategist of St. Louis Trust and Family Office. And is the author of a new book called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, John. Hi, thanks, Jordan. Excited to be here. Just give us a little brief history of yourself and, and how you got to, uh, to writing this book. Yeah, so I started off my career as a lawyer doing estate planning and tax law and a little bit of traffic law just for fun, right? So Missouri is actually a speeder's paradise. You can get your uh, moving violations turned into non-moving violations. Uh, but then I was at Arthur Anderson where I, I got back into investments. I, I majored in finance and undergrad and also was doing high-end tax and estate planning. And as uh, people of at least a certain age will remember, Arthur Anderson imploded in the wake of the Enron scandal. So at the time, a horrible thing, and it was for a lot of people. We had about 90,000 employees. But selfishly, it turned out great because we started our current firm out of the ashes of Arthur Anderson. So it started with a handful of our clients and a handful of our people. And today, we work with 64 client families across the U.S., about $15 billion of wealth. So it's about $230 million of family on average. And we have uh, 62 employees. So we're very customized, about a one-to-one client-to-employee ratio. So that's that's who we are and who I am. Very good. Okay, so your book is called The Uncertainty Solution. Uh, part of what was formative for you was the crash of the economy in 2008, 2009. Just tell us kind of how that changed your perception of the markets before and after that. Yeah, so it was it was kind of like the the red pill blue pill moment of the matrix, right? Where I, you know, took the, the 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 red pill and decided to see reality. So, leading up to the financial crisis, I thought to be an effective advisor, I had to know as much of as I possibly could about everything. So, I was like this walking talking encyclopedia of what was happening in the economy and the financial markets. But I I had this interesting experience where you know, I didn't see the financial crisis coming. And when we were in the midst of it, I couldn't see a way out and, and I wasn't alone. And I just tried to gather more and more information about what was happening. But in the midst of this, you know, right before the bottom in February of 2009, I went to a, a, a meeting with a client and one of my colleagues who's, you know, one of the, also the co-founders of our, our firm. And she didn't try to stay up on everything all the time. She kept lightly abreast. I mean, super smart. And, but you know, wasn't spending the hours a day that I was, but I just remember how calm she was advising our client and just said, Hey, listen, you have a lot of bonds. You have a lot of cash. You're going to ride through this. The world's not going to end. Yeah. Things stink, but you know, you're still, you're still wealthy. And I just realized like she could see the forest and I was stuck in the trees. So it, it really set me on this path of trying to find a better way, really trying to focus on investment wisdom instead of drinking from the fire hose of information of, of uh, investment news and, and strategies and economic indicators. It was, it was, it was really a, a transformative experience for me and, and a lot of others I know as well. So, so what is the harm, I guess you'd say, in drinking from the fire hose and watching TV and reading yeah. all these publications and newsletters and listening to economists and analysts 
it, it can be overwhelming, but what, what's the downside of immersing yourself in that world? Yeah, so the, the biggest the biggest downside is it makes you think you know more than you do <laughs> or that you're able to, to process. So there's this this fascinating paper that was put out, uh, one of the most uh, famous papers in, in psychology you know, from decades ago called The Magic Number 7 Plus or Minus 2. So that refers to the, the, the range of 5 to 9. And, and that's how many items, it, it's, and this has been replicated with other studies, that's how many items of information we can hold in our working memory. And, and our working memory is basically where we do our thinking. And if you think about, okay, you can only hold about seven items of information in your head and you're drinking from the fire hose of information where you're flooding it with, you know, dozens or even hundreds of items of information. You, you just can't evaluate that much stuff. Um, and it may not even be the right things that you're you're evaluating or you're waiting because again we, we have this this real uh, you know this real this real limitation. But what does happen is when you have more information, you feel more confident. You feel like you have a handle at what's going on. But studies have found that there's actually an inverse relationship with the amount of confidence that you have in your ability to evaluate what's going on or. Uh, or your predictions of what's going to happen in the future. So it's actually counterproductive to to gather as much information as possible. So it's better to have less confidence, you're saying, and not follow these trends uh, as much, and you'll be yeah. a better investor. Yeah, absolutely. It's better to have the humility of realizing all that you don't know. And it, it leads to the situation where if confidence and prediction ability are inverse related, which they are, especially in areas like the financial markets and the economy and politics. So that means who you want to listen to, who you want to hear on CNBC or, you know, Fox News, Fox Business News or what what have you. What you who you want to hear from are those experts that are not confident in their predictions, <laughs> which means which means they're not the ones that are get, getting on you know TV. And I'll tell you, I write for Forbes and every year I publish a an article called what is the market going to return in 2019 or 2020 2021 2022 and so on and it's the same every year now it's a different article but the point is the same and here's my prediction and i'll tell you here's my prediction for 2024 you can be the first to hear it the stock market will probably be up but it might be down and that's just based on the fact that about 70 percent of the time the stock market's up in a calendar year and and you, you you know i get tons of clicks tens of thousands of clicks on these articles every year and it's really people wanting the certainty of knowing what's going to happen in the future but what they're getting is someone who's not confident in their predictions and that is as precise a prediction you can make and still be accurate and it is useful it's useful to know that the market will probably be up <laughs> it, it, that is really a useful thing to know but it's also useful to know that you can't be any more predictive than that and still be correct. So in 2022, when that was my prediction and the market was down, I was right because I said it might be down. And so far in 2023, my prediction that it's probably up is also correct. <laughs> people began the year, people began 2023 very downbeat because we had such a bad 2022. At the beginning of the year, all the economists were going to say we're having a recession and maybe a hard landing. Oh, the stock market was going to go down dramatically. They 
they had the overhang from 2022, and it turns out all of them were wrong, basically. All of them. Yeah, I, I, I read something at the end of last year that, that – and I forget if it was the Barron's or Wall Street Journal or somebody. You know, They poll all these economists, and they came back after pulling them all and said there's 100 percent consensus that we, have, we go into a recession in the first half of 2023. Right. <laughs> didn't work out that way. Yeah, it didn't, didn't, work, didn't work out, yeah. So, okay, so you're saying don't think about predictions. The, the, the less certain you are, the better. So does that apply to individual stocks as well? You should not try to pick individual stocks because you can't predict how they're going to do? Well, I wouldn't say never pick individual stocks. Um, you know, I like to, uh, you know, with a small portion of my portfolio, buy a few stocks here and there because I think there's more about investing than just um, always saying I'm going to do the most, you know, rational thing. And, and sometimes individual stocks can really work out great. So I really think the way to think about individual stocks is this: um, when you buy an individual stock, it's like you're flipping a weighted coin, where about you know, over longer periods of time, two thirds or 75% of the time, you're going to lose out. In, in other words, you should have just bought, you know, an index fund tracking the stock market. And, and the reason for this is pretty simple. Um, when you look at the, the stock market average, it is pulled up by a smaller number of high, high performers, like that, that return hundreds and thousands of a percent um, over a 10 or 20 year time period, where most stocks, meaning that those uh, about two thirds or 75% of them underperform the average. And, and the reason for it's simple. So think about the math this way. The most a stock can lose is 100%. So even if you have 10, 15% of stocks going to zero um, over a 20 year time period, the most they can lose is 100%. But the most a stock can gain is not infinite, but thousands of percent. So in fact, from 2000 to 2020, Apple was the top performing stock and it earned 9,000%. Yep. So you, you can think that the Apples and the Amazons and uh, uh, by the way, also AutoZone and United Healthcare and TJ Maxx and, and, and uh, Union Pacific, all those were top 20 performing stocks. The thousands of percent return, those stocks delivered pulled the average up. So the temptation is, is to try to buy individual stocks that are going to give you those hundreds or thousands of percents returns. But you just have to realize you're, you're probably, you know, the odds are against you picking those. And even if you did, even if you said, okay, I'm going to buy Apple in 2000, it was an incredibly rough ride. Um, I mean, the, the stock lost over 60% of its value three different uh, times. And the same is for all those high flyers. So the, the chances of being able to just stick with it is, is pretty difficult. So I, I guess my, my, my message is nuance, which is, you know, sure, buy some individual stocks, but just go into it knowing the odds are against you and, and structure your portfolio accordingly. Whereas the odds are for you if you're buying broad indexes. Would you do like an S&P 500 or a, a global market index? What kind of indexes would you and, and hold them for the long term, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that what index and how to structure it depends on the individual investor and, you know, all, all their, their factors. But yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to go wrong saying, oh, I'm going to buy, you know, the global stock market or the entire U.S. stock market or even the S&P 500. Those are all things that uh, over time um, have, have shown that they can build real wealth and, and really compound your, your, your money over time. Absolutely. And how about the bond side? The same thing, don't do individual bonds, but do bond index funds? 
Yeah, yeah. Again, and as, you know, bonds bonds are a bit different because bonds don't go to zero except for on very rare occasions. So if you're buying municipal bonds, um, I mean, kind of the way to look at it is you're going to get back par. So you know, whatever you pay for it, you've you've locked in your your yield to maturity or yield to worst or what what have you. So um, you know, muni bonds, especially investment grade, they they just almost never default. So that's a little different of a, a situations in, in terms of the math. So if somebody wants to, you know, ladder a bond portfolio of individual bonds, you know, so be it. So I, I think bonds have a different place in a, in, in the portfolio than um, in, in terms of investment strategy than, than, than stocks. Yeah. And as far as cash today, I mean, you're earning five, five and a half percent. What role should cash play in a portfolio today? Yeah. So cash was just this, just absolute drag on a portfolio. Now, uh, it's actually, you know, positive. And what's interesting is is that our firm, we, we had our performance report set up. So we didn't actually have a line that broke out cash as to report on because it, it was basically has been zero for, for so long. And, um, you know, it was included in overall performance, but not in anything to call out. And we've actually had to change our reports. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, we, we have clients like, so I'll give you an example. So we, again, we, we, we work with pretty wealthy clients and, uh, you know, we, we have this, this, this client family and they sold their, their business for a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and as, as we're working on investing the money, you know, it's, it's earning that, you know, five and a half percent. And they're, they're a little bit like, why should we, you know, invest in anything? We could just, you know, it's throwing off enough cash. It's, it's in excess of our living expenses. Why can't we just live off the five and a half percent? And it's kind of like, yeah, if you could lock that in for the next 30 years, that'd be great. But, you know, the, the chances are, at least the market is, is forecasting the, both the, the, the bond market and, you know, Fed futures, that these high rates on cash aren't necessarily going to persist. I mean, again, who knows? But but the chances are that, you know, the, the, the returns on cash come down at some point as, um, uh, you know, inflation eases as it appears to be. Yes. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Jennings. He's the president and chief strategist at St. Louis Trust and Family Office based in St. Louis. His book is called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. Uh, you can find out more at his personal website, johnjennings.com, or his company website, stlouistrust.com. We'll be back after this. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. 
That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Jennings. He's the president and chief strategist at St. Louis Trust and Family Office, based in St. Louis. His book is called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence, in the face of the unknown, his personal website is johnmjennings.com, and his company website is stlouistrust.com. Welcome back to the show, John. Great. Thanks. So people spend a lot of time predicting not only the stock market, but the economy. What is the difference and what is the correlation between economic success or failure, you know, good or bad economy, and stock market returns? Yeah, so this is something that a lot of people find surprising, but if you create this mental model in your head, it's, it's probably the, the, the number one thing from my book you can, you can take to, to be a more successful investor. And it's that the stock market and the economy are not correlated. Um, so if you, if you go back and you look at, you know, since World War II, the correlation between calendar year and any particular year, you know, economic growth is measured by GDP. And then what the stock market has done as measured by the S&P 500, the correlation is a 0.03. And what that means is that that's basically zero. And when something is, is positively correlated, it means that the, the, the variables are, are moving uh, in the same direction from their means at the same time. And negative correlation means they're moving, moving opposite. What's, when something's zero correlated, as, as the economy and stock market are, it, it means that they don't bear any relation to each other. You know, sometimes one's up and the other's up, and sometimes one's down and the other's down. So it, you, you really can't draw a conclusion from it. And in fact, if you go back to 1930, there have been 19 years where GDP growth was negative. So the economy contracted as measured over the course of the year. And in 12 of those 19 years, the stock market was up. And in all, you know, in 11 of those 12 years, it was up by over 18%. So, wow. Like, how can I mean, think about that? So as the economy is contracting, the stock market is delivering, you know, double digit positive positive returns. It's just, it, it can be a head scratcher. But interestingly, um, Credit Suisse looked at this in more depth and they did something interesting. They said, let's look at the prior year stock market return to the following year GDP growth. And then they found a pretty strong positive correlation. It, it you know, again, it varies over time, but it, it averages out to be about a 0.6. So that means that the, the stock market is moving in the same direction about 60% of the time with what the economy does the following year. So what this tells us is that the economy doesn't tell us what the stock market's going to do, but the stock market tells us what the economy is going to do. Again, ish, like not perfectly, but with an ish. So as an investor, we, we, we often look at what's going on in what I call the real world, which is the economy. And we, we use what's going on to inform how we're going to invest. And that's just not the correct thing to do because the stock market is going to digest the information that it thinks is going to happen in the future 
and it's going to move well in advance of, of what's happening in the real world. And a perfect example of that was in March of 2020. So recall that you know, this is really when COVID was, yeah. was starting to, to kick up and and we were realizing that things were getting really bad. So the, the market high prior to you know all the COVID shutdown in the U.S. was on February 26th. And then the stock market declined 34%, in, the fastest it ever has in the entire history of the stock market. It declined to past 30% in, in 20 trading days, which was, was, was steeper than it did in the 1929 crash. And then on March 23rd, the stock market bottomed. But like if Jordan, if you and I are sitting there on March 23rd and we're looking around at what's happening and we find a crystal ball and it tells us what's going to happen in the future, but not the stock market. But it tells us, hey, guess what? You know, we've just had the, our thousandth COVID reported death in the, in the U.S., but we're going to have 330,000 by the end of the year. We're going to have six million worldwide in the next three years. And entire sport leagues are going to, you know, NHL and NBA are going to cancel their, their, their seasons and you can't travel internationally and entire industries are going to practically be wiped out and unemployment's going to spike to, you know, 14.7% highest since the Great Depression and the economy is going to contract at about a 9% pace next quarter. Like, I think we'd probably look at each other and say, let's, you know, let's, let's take our money out of the stock market and, you know, bury it in, in our backyards. But that was the stock market low. It's because, I mean, people always say the stock market is a forecasting, it's, it's it is. a looking vehicle, and you can't can't you can't look at what's happening now, what just happened. So, for it, example, it, right it, now, it, it, and what that tells you as an investor is is to shut off all the news, or at least don't make investment decisions based on what's going on in the news or predictions about what's going to happen in the real world, such as elections or recessions or any of that, because the stock market will move well in advance of whatever is going to happen. So it sounds to me like you're a random walk, you know, Burton Matthews classic random walk down Wall Street. It sounds like you're agreeing that the stock market is taking in all the information and you can't possibly kind of outsmart it. Is that what you're saying? Um, yes. I will say that human with, with a caveat. So I think that's absolutely true on a day-to-day -day basis. The, the stock market is a random walk, uh, but but I do think that you know the stock market's made up of, of individuals that um, you know are are human and they have fear and they have greed. So what you you do tend to find is you know bubbles do happen and then crashes that are worse than they, they you know, rationally should be happen. So I, I do think there is some ability and it, it's not in most investors, it's not even in my, you know, in myself personally, <laughs> but there are some investors out there that can, I think, take advantage of the her-like behavior of everybody else. So there are, you know, just great investors, you know, it's kind of like the, the Warren Buffett adage of be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. I, I think there is some of that you can do that will give you better returns over time because there are patterns. They're just, it's just really hard for any of us. Uh, it's really hard for any of us to capitalize on them. So I don't want to say that nobody out there can generate outsized returns because some people can. It just so happens that, you know, for 90 plus percent of us, uh, it, we won't. <laughs> so, so where do we stand now? I mean, the market's had a big move, so we should be fearful now. We've had such a big move. We should be defensive and getting out of stocks because it's had such a yeah. big move. Yeah, and I, I have an entire chapter in my book on, on you know, market market cycles. And, and I think the thing to do is, you know, you're not going to be able to 
to perfectly time the the ups to the the downs and and often booms go on longer than you expect and and bus often do too uh, but not always because again during COVID the, the the bus turned around really really quickly now I think the thing to do is 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 what's important in the market cycle is to say okay you know when things are starting to feel frothy so for instance in you know in 2021 the stock market was just had been on a tear it had actually had a nice 2020 and, and what we do is we, we talk to our clients about even though you know, it's human nature to get caught up in maybe the euphoria, the euphoria or the FOMO, the fear of missing out, is is to continue to be disciplined and actually sell things that have been doing really well and to make sure you have tons of cash and, and to think about, you know, stress test your portfolio and, and your own emotion. So what happens when and if the, the stock market declines 20, 30, 40%. You know, do I have enough in cash to ride this out? And what's my behavior going to be like? You know, am I going to maybe, if, you know, bonds didn't hold up well in, in 2022, but, um, you know, if, if my bonds hold up, am I going to be able to sell them and, and buy into stocks when it seems like it's catching falling knives? And the same thing on the downside is, is to realize that putting capital to work when everything feels horrible. Uh, in a disciplined way is 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 the way to is the way to do things. So I, I don't think it's so much that you try to time as it is that you, you realize when things feel or are getting more frothy and more expensive, just to be smart about it. That's not the time to be taking on a lot of debt. It's not a, a, lot, a time to be, you know, locking in, you know, big obligations on on spending. You know, you need to, if you're an individual investor, think about, you know, what if I lost my job or, you know, what what if my portfolio does decline 40%? Are you able to weather the storm um, instead? Instead of being thinking, you know, I'm gonna, I, you know, I'm, I have FOMO and I want to, you know, pile in, um, you know, at the tail end of a of a good thing. And that's where we're at now. You're saying, as far as the timing, that's kind of what you're feeling what we're not. There's yeah, a sense of euphoria. Well, and... I mean, I, I have absolutely no prediction um, uh, on, you know, what's going to happen between now and the end of the year on the the stock market. I mean, if if you told me, hey, it's going to be up another 10 percent, I'd be like. Okay, and if you're like, okay, it's going to decline fifteen percent, I'd be like, uh, yeah. So you know, I I really don't know which way it's 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 heading. But the key thing is to have enough of a margin of safety that you don't make bad behavioral choices. And, and really, behavior is the most important aspect of investing. And so doing those things which help uh, foster good behavior investing is is what's critical to be a successful investor. Do you get pushback from clients? For example, say you're in March 2020 and the market just fell 40% and you're starting to buy. Do you get pushback from clients? This is crazy. The world's coming to an end. Or now yep. where the market's up a lot and you're selling, you get pushback saying, you know, yeah. you're going to miss out on all this upside. Does, does that happen? Yeah, abs absolutely. And especially on on you know, big swing. So when you have the, the, the drop in, in March of 2020, I'll, I'll tell you most, you know, most of our clients were like, yeah, let's, let's sell some bonds and buy some stocks. Uh, you, you know, we only had one client that uh, I'll, I'll say sort of panicked and, and pulled some money out of the, the market. Most everybody else was, you know, just, you know, I think they felt good that their portfolio had enough bonds and enough cash and, you know, no, nobody else panicked. And again, some, you know, with a lot of clients were saying, yeah, let's sell bonds and buy stocks and 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 a good number of them actually went ahead and did that. So I think part of it is just being educated and having a plan and, and then having an advisor that is really focused on behavior, I think is is essential. Do you think a lot of people wouldn't be able to do that on their own? Are they, they need to uh, it'd be it'd be so hard and i'll tell you i probably need a financial advisor of my own 
<laughs> because, you know, I could sit with a client and give all this great advice and, you know, they, they'll follow it. And and then my own house is maybe not quite as clean <laughs> when it comes to my own, uh, you know, investment housekeeping. So <laughs> I find you a good financial advisor. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Jennings. He's the president and chief strategist at St. Louis Trust and Family Office based in St. Louis. His book is called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. His personal website is johnmjennings.com, and his company website is stlouistrust.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Jennings. He is the uh, president and chief strategist at St. Louis Trust and Family Office in St. Louis. His company website, stlouistrust.com. His book is called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. And his personal website is johnmjennings.com. Welcome back to the show, John. Great. So you said people should list, invest like a dead person. How do dead people invest? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's inactivity, yeah. So, um, yeah, as, as we, we mentioned in a prior segment, you know, really the most important thing you can do as an investor to be successful is to practice good investment behavior. And what what does that mean? And what, what you brought up with the, the dead person uh, point is that one of the key attributes of good behavior is to have your, as your default, inactivity. And let me, let me start with a, probably my favorite 
study that I've ever read in investing. Uh, it's called Boys Will Be Boys. Uh, the subtitle is something like uh, A Study of Gender Differences in Investing. And what these academics did is somehow they got a discount brokerage that's unnamed in the study um, to give them 10 years of information on 35,000 investment accounts. And what they did is they dug in and they said, okay, which, which gender invests better? And, and they found that the, the, the uh, single females did the best, followed by married females, you know, dragged down by their husbands, married males dragged up by their wives, and in the, in the rear, in the caboose, was uh, uh, single males. And, and they said, well, why is this? Like, why do females invest better than males? Because what they found was is both genders, regardless of marital status, were equally as bad at making investment decisions. So what they found is on average, investments that were sold outperformed investments that were bought. So it would make sense that if every investment decision on average is bad, that you should make less trades. <laughs> and that's what they found. They found that the single females traded 45% less than the single males. And they speculated that the reason for this is that the males are more overconfident when it comes to finance and investing than females. And, and they make the point that females have their own areas where they're more overconfident, but uh, based on all sorts of other uh, studies by other researchers, that males are more overconfident when it comes to investing in finance. So what that tells you is, is that when you're thinking that you should make an investment decision or a trade, you should pause and probably not do it. <laughs> and and that was buttressed by this Fidelity study. And this Fidelity study was internal. It's, it's never been published. So there's only um, a report where journalists talk to, to somebody at Fidelity. So we don't have a ton of detail on this Fidelity study. But, but what they did is they looked at 10 years of, of data and they said, you know, what are the characteristics of our top performing accounts? And they found that accounts of dead people or locked accounts, so think someone that has switched jobs and hasn't moved their 401k, that these, these dead people and locked accounts were their highest performing accounts on average. So, it, you know, if, if you're male, you should try to invest like a female. And if you're female, don't be too smug. You should try to invest like a dead person. So that, and this is really a key mental model to have as, a, as an investor, which is in general, don't trade. <laughs> I mean, this is the exact opposite of the way things are going today. Everybody's doing like meme stocks, you know, buying stocks, yeah. they go bankrupt, day trading, crypto trading, uh, high speed, you know, uh, trading, uh, high frequency trading. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the amount of trading is speeding up options trading. I mean, this is like where people are going today is more and more trading faster and faster. So you're saying most of those people are losing. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you that that's a great point because, you, you know, again, I, I mentioned at the, the first segment. So, so we work mainly with, with people, you know, families with a hundred million dollars and more. And, and that's pretty rarefied air. There are people all across the country. And, and you know, we're, we're first and foremost a family office. So there's the, the, the money that we invest for them. But they also, a lot of our clients have money elsewhere in addition to us. You know, places, you know, the big brokerage firms, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, you know, big banks, Bank of America, Northern Trust, U.S. Bank, what have you. And because we're their family office, we're like, fine, you know, we don't care. You can have money elsewhere. And we're going to download and report on those assets as well. And what we see 
usually in the financial industry, and we download from 75 different banks and brokerages where our clients have money, we, we get to see not just what these big institutions say they're going to do. We see what they actually do. And what we see is usually overly complex portfolios with way too much activity that underperform the market. Like there, there is nobody out there that just in general is killing it. Um, you know, really when it comes to investing in stocks and bonds, I mean, private investments, private equity, venture capital is different. We can or can't touch on that if you'd like, Jordan. But, you know, in stocks and bonds, um, it's rare to see any of these portfolios that are outperforming the market over long periods of time. And, and on a lot of them are massively underperforming. And um, so as these people go to, you know, parties or talk to their friends, they may talk about this stock they bought. Oh, you know, I bought NVIDIA and that was great. Or, you know, I have this particular, you know, mutual fund or investment manager that did great. But they're not talking about all the other things that have massively, you know, underperformed that are counteracting that. And I think that as investors out there, you, you should just realize that most investors, and there's studies on this, most investors underperform the market. Or if they're, you know, stock and bond portfolio, they underperform their blended index. This is most investors. So if you just decide, I'm going to own the stock market and I'm going to, you know, own a fund that owns, you know, bonds, and you, you're inactive, you know, very rarely do you do anything and don't chase the mean stocks or the crypto this or that. Just know that you will be outperforming the vast majority of other investors. They may have more sexy things to talk about in terms of investing, but just rest assured that you are beating most everybody. I mean, yet the, the huge trend, in addition to what we just talked about, fast trading, is indexing. I mean, there are trillions of dollars in index funds, both directly and through 401ks and pension funds. There's been a massive move into indexing. So you'd think that people are doing better if they're putting more and more into index funds. Well, that, you'd think that, but what started as a single ETF tracking the S&P 500 has now turned into over 7,000 index funds, so funds that track an index. Mm -hmm. And there, there's now more indexes than there are stocks in the U.S. <laughs> so there's like there's like 4,3800 you know public stocks in the U.S. and there's something you know something in excess of 5,000 indexes. So the financial industry this is how it always moves. It moves from simplicity to complexity if there's a way to make fees. So it, it, you know there's a dizzying array of indexes out there, and we often see like we'll we'll see portfolios at other firms or, or a client will you know come to us from another firm and you know they they may have a portfolio that is only in index funds but it's common to see that they're stuffed with i don't know 20 or 30 index funds and they're just you know sliced and diced these small little percentages and it makes the behavior hard and and there's this activity. So you'll have these, these, you know, whether it's the investor or the advisor saying, oh, you know, we should lighten up on your emerging markets or your international small cap, or, you know, we have value and growth and core, <laughs> you know, and, and we're going to do some indexes that track, I don't know, electric vehicles or, you know, the, one of my favorites is the livestock indexes fund is, is the ticker symbol is moo. <laughs> you know, let's, you know, let's, let's try to take advantage of these different things. And it, it really has become almost just like picking individual stocks. You know, oh, let's pick a robotics ETF. So, um, so I, I think there's a lot of different ways you can index. And the what the industry is going to do 
is they're going to look for ways to make money, which is we need to justify our existence with our fees. So we're going to make things complex. So it seems like we're doing something. Uh-huh. So you must not be very popular in the investment industry because you're basically saying they're all a waste of time and they're charging fees well, justified and so on. You know, what's interesting is, so this is this, you know, a lot of things we're talking about are in my book. And, and when I was writing my book, my editor said two things to me. She said, first of all, this feels like you're saying there's no Santa Claus. And second of all, is this going to be controversial? Like, are people going to dislike you? I'm like, no, people in the industry know this. And so I've had all sorts of people in the industry, you know, stockbrokers and financial advisors read my book. And they've all told me, yeah, we agree with this. So there's a few things that are, that are keeping them from disliking me because of this book. Um, you know, number one is human nature that they don't view themselves like in that camp. <laughs> so even if they're doing a lot of the things I'm talking about, they think they're doing it better than other people because we're, we're all overconfident. Uh, yeah. humans in general, and particularly in the financial industry. So so that's number one. And then number two, what they will tell me, you know, th again, this is like after a drink or, you know, when we're having happy hour at a lunch or whatever, is we wish we could invest more simply like your book says and be less active, but then our clients wouldn't pay us. And because our bring any value to them. Right, right. right. So, and I, I get it. And we do some of this too as a firm. Again, we're a family office. So our clients value a lot of things that we do besides just investing. So it's easier for us than others to say, hey, we're going to put you in three index funds and, you know, maybe some private equity uh, th than it is maybe for, you know, another firm. Because when they look at our fees, they say, oh, wow, you're, you're paying our bills and you're educating our children and you're, um, you know, helping us with our philanthropic planning and our cash flow and finding, you know, which private jet program to use. So we're doing all these other things for them, justifying our existence. But if we were just investing, and I, I get it, I get why these, the, the, the industry does this. Like if you're going to charge somebody some, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to be their financial advisor, and you just showed them, here's your portfolio. It's in a bond fund and you know, two index funds. They'd be like, I could do that myself. Why am I paying you? So again, they, they're going to put in 15, 20 index funds or some single stocks or some active managers and all this other stuff because they need to be paid. And you're not going to pay someone just to give you the S&P 500 and an international index. To justify their existence. To saying. justify their existence. But if that's what you do, it's kind of like Warren Buffett. He said in one of his uh, annual letters years ago that at his death, he's directed his trustees that any money for his wife is to go 90% in the S&P 500 and 10% into a bond fund. And the entire investment industry went bananas over that, arguing why that's not appropriate. But if you look back over the last 20 years, Warren Buffett's 90% S&P, 10% bond portfolio you know, did unbelievably well. Like that portfolio would probably be in the top, you know, two or 3% of, you know, all portfolios out there. But yet the industry hates that because then they have clients say, hey, you know, arguably the greatest investor of all time is saying that I should just do the S&P and the advisor has to go, oh, well, no, that's not right for you and here's why. And, and yep. again, it's, it's, it's difficult. Justifying their existence, very good. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Jennings. He's president and chief strategist at St. Louis Trust and Family Office in St. Louis. His book is called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. His personal website is johnmjennings.com. His uh, company website is stlouistrust.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, John Jennings, is President and Chief Strategist at St. Louis uh, Trust and Family Office. His book is called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. His website, johnmjennings.com, and the company, stlouistrust.com. Welcome back to the show, John. Great. Glad to be back. Book, you also have a blog. Uh, what is the name of your blog? Yeah, it's called the IFOD, the Interesting Fact of the Day. And, uh, yeah, I've been um, – it's now just down to a few times a, a week, and I've been writing it since Groundhog's Day in 2017. <laughs> so let's go through some of those. One of them, you should say, optimistic people live longer. Why would that be? Yeah, so um, there, there's been all sorts of studies about um, the power of being optimistic. And, you know, th- they're not quite sure if, um, you, you know, the, the causation can run uh, both, both directions here. But, but optimistic people tend to be happier. They tend to have better marriages. And then there's health benefits. They tend to have stronger immune systems and lower risk of mortality uh, of, uh, of, of all causes. But there was this fascinating study that I highlight in this blog post. And what it did is it looked at 230 professional baseball players. Basically, they're, they're uh, you know, if you think of a trading card. So it basically took from the baseball register, which were pictures, basically the trading card pictures from 1952. And they had these volunteers um, look at each card and and categorize it as are they giving a legitimate smile what's called known as a duchene smile like can you tell that this person is really smiling versus um a fake smile versus no smile at all and and not just this study but others have shown that that whether or not you're, you're you tend to um, have an authentic s- smile relates to your personality so there's a you know there's a correlation there and what they found is that is is, is they're able to track these baseball players because the study was was done in like 2012 and is uh, baseball cards from 1952 and they, they found that those that had a deshane smile lived about seven years longer on average than those that didn't smile do they have better wow. averages as well pardon do they have better batting averages as well? <laughs> no, uh, that, that, that didn't seem to be part of the study. <laughs> you also had a blog post called The Empty Nest Happiness Boost. So what happens when the kids go off to college? Yeah, so my wife and I became empty nesters three years ago, and we really, really love both of our daughters, and we love when they come back home. 
but we just noticed like how happy we were, you know, and we have three different sets of really good friends that all have their, their, their youngest child going off to college. And I, I read this, this book recently uh, called the good life. And, and, and it, what it does is it they they tracked now in its 85th year. They they started with um, 1938 with with sophomores at Harvard, which included John F. Kennedy, by the way, and another 700 and some odd um, non-Harvard Bostonians of about the same age. And they've tracked these people for their entire lives. It's a pretty amazing study. It's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and and um, now they're on to their their kids. So there's like 1,300 you know descendants that they're they're tracking as well. And, you know all sorts of things, health and and uh, you know they ask them about like happy happiness and life satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera. But a, a thing that stood out to me with respect to empty nest syndrome is is they looked at happiness of people at different stages in their lives of being parents, and they found that empty nesters do get a happiness boost. <laughs> When when their kids you know leave home or their youngest kid leaves home, and then a more recent study that was in Europe of fifty five thousand people also found the same thing that having no children in the home um, actually improved not only happiness but the mental health of parents. <laughs> well, that, that responsibility is not right in front of you all the time, man. Yeah, and, what, and Jordan, maybe you know, I don't know if you have, have kids I and if you're out of the home. Do. Yeah, but but like when they're at home. Like you feel like you have, you know, they they make choices and decisions that you're like, ah, eh, and you're and you, you you use all this willpower, like trying not to be in their business when they're teenagers, and when they go off, you just don't see all the day to day. Exactly. We also have a blog post called "How to Master Your Goals: The Power of Rigid Planning Over Flexible Ambitions." What's the point of that one? Um, yeah. So the the the, the point there is that. If you're going to make like think about like it's New Year's time and you're going to make a, a New Year's resolution, right? And let's say your resolution is, is, oh, I just want to lose more weight. Well, that's a fine goal, but it doesn't put any you know meat on the bone on how you're going to do that. Or if you said, I want to get in shape. So you, you might say, oh, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week. But that's that's a more rigid goal than I just want to get in shape. But it doesn't really tell you what to do every day. So if you said, I'm going to go to the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings at 6.30 a.m. Now, that's a rigid goal. So what happened is, is different studies, different researchers have looked at these different types of goals and found that the more rigid you make the process, the better chance you have of, of having success. And, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I know that um, Peter Atia has also looked at this. You know, he's a well-known doctor that talks about health and, and longevity. And again, he, he has said that, yeah, absolutely, that, that you should have, you know, when it comes to working out, you should absolutely have, you know, that time of day that you're going to go work out. It doesn't need to be the same every day, but it should be something that's basically on your calendar. Um, that if you just leave it up to, to flexibility, that you're not likely to uh, achieve as, as much success. Yes. You also have one about uh, the toilet paper shortage that happened during COVID and what that teaches us about the uh, failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Explain yeah, that and I also talk about toilet paper uh, hoarding in, um, in in my book, and I think it's fascinating because you know who knows what started the the toilet paper hoarding back in the pandemic. If you, if you remember what that was like, I mean, it, it, Jordan, if we're if we were sitting here, you know, it's like 2019, and I said, Hey, Jordan. 
we're probably going to have this worldwide pandemic next year. What would what do you think you should go stock up on? You know, maybe toilet paper is on the list, but it's it's probably not the number one thing. It's more, more like, oh, I'd make sure that I, you know, maybe have cans of food like beans and maybe water, maybe beer. You know, maybe I'd buy some face masks or, you know, what have you. But for whatever reason, once the toilet paper hoarding started, it was completely rational on an individual level to buy excess toilet paper, right? So uh, my wife is one of these people that keeps us well-stocked in everything. So going into the pandemic, we have plenty of toilet paper, we have plenty of paper towel rolls, et cetera, et cetera. But yet in April of 2020, I went to Walgreens and I was going to get a prescription. And I noticed that the toilet paper shelf, which is always just completely empty, had one package of toilet paper. So I bought it. And I was when I was checking out with the pharmacist, I was like, I'm so sorry I'm buying this. I know I'm being part of the problem, not part of the solution. We have plenty of toilet paper at home, but I don't know how long this is going to last. And this pharmacist text looking at me like, you know, what are you talking about, right? But but it was completely rational to be part of the problem. And you can relate that to the bank run with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and First Republic and et cetera, which is is that as humans, like we don't want to be caught out. And yeah. and if you if you looked at what was going on with any of these banks and, and we looked at it as a company too. So we have millions of dollars of you know capital that was sitting at our bank, which is this you know mid-sized bank. And we said, should we leave the money in, in in our bank? And we're like, it's probably fine, but we're not sure, <laughs> right? So we said, just like the toilet paper, we're probably fine. We're probably not going to run out. But to be completely safe, let's move it into a position traded money market at Schwab, you know? And and it totally ex- the toilet paper example totally explains complex adaptive systems and and which is the stock market and the economy and the banking system which is completely rational actions by individuals can roll up to cause just bonkers uh, effects on a system-wide level. We have about 2 minutes left. Why don't you kind of summarize the difference it'll make in people's lives if they follow the advice you've given and the uncertainty solution? Yeah, so as humans, we really don't like uncertainty. In fact, a, a primary human motive is the resolution of uncertainty. So we have this quest for certainty. But often how we react in the face of uncertainty um, is counterproductive. It was really you know, ways, ways that we, we evolved to deal with uncertainty that were productive you know, tens of thousands of years ago that no longer are. So really what my book does is it gives investors and even if you're not an investor just uh, you know uh, you know just in your daily life mental models or tools for how to think about dealing with uncertainty because there are things as investors that we can know and that we can control that will make us better investors so when you're feeling uncertain about the stock market or the economy my book has 35 of what I call mental models, things to fall back on to help make good decisions. So for example, and you know, investing like a dead person is is one of those. And understanding that even if you had a crystal ball telling you what this, the future held in the economy, it wouldn't help you invest is incredibly important when you're feeling the stress of uncertainty in the in, in the the economy. So it's a, again, it's a bunch of mental models like that that hopefully will help people um, make better decisions, have better behavior, and thus have more money. Really, my goal is for anybody that reads the book, my hope is that they'll have more money in 20 years than they would have if they hadn't read it. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been John Jennings. He's the president and chief strategist at St. Louis Trust and Family Office. His book that we were just talking about is called The Uncertainty Solution, 
How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. His website is johnmjennings.com, and his company website is stlouistrust.com. Thanks so much. We really appreciate your insights. Thanks, Jordan. And we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.